Welcome to In the Telling. I'm Stephen G. Forwood. And I'm Miranda Mims, and we are the co-founders of the Nomadic Archivist Project. Join us twice a month for stories about the Black family experience from people just like you. Family lore, saving personal and family records, connecting family stories to local, national, international histories, researching archival institutions, loss and grief, physical and spiritual spaces, and so much more. As we all know, the world has been dealing with the devastating impact of the COVID-19 virus. In this difficult time, we at NAP sincerely hope that you and your families and loved ones are safe and sound. NAP is still offering our scholarship and has extended the application deadline, Thursday, April 30th, 2020. In the event that the Society of American Archivists decides to cancel its annual conference, NAP is considering alternative ways we can support individuals in their professional development, including membership dues, course registrations, travel costs, and projects. Please check our website for updates. I would like to welcome our guest today, Alexis DeVoe. Alexis was born and raised in Harlem. She is the product of two merging streams of Black history in New York City. Immigrants from the Caribbean on her mother's side and migrants from North Carolina on her father's side. Both who settled in Harlem in the early decades of the 20th century. The second of eight children, that history was embedded in her mother's view of life, as she would say, quote, you got three strikes against you, you poor, you black, and you female, end quote. But Alexis was drawn to the world of words and books, and literature soon became the means by which she reimagined the world her mother understood. She is the author of many books, including Nami, Spirits in the Street, Blue Heat, a portfolio of poems and drawings, Don't Explain a Song of Billie Holiday, Warrior Poet, a biography of Audre Lorde, and her most recent book, Yabo. We are very excited to have you here with us on In the Telling. Welcome, Alexis. Thank you, Miranda, and thank you, Stephen. And we're really excited to have you here with us, Alexis. I want to begin um, by talking with you about your family. I have a couple questions to sort of get us started here. Mm -hmm. uh, like, when I spoke with you this past week, you get a, to get a sense of the kind of story that mm -hmm. uh, you wanted to tell, mm -hmm. it feels, it's obviously like all family stories, very nuanced and in progress. Mm -hmm. And some, one of the things that struck me is like, when we talk about our biological family, how does one negotiate grief and loss? This is one of your comments, um, mm -hmm. questions rather, and how to do that as a queer person. Mm -hmm. And so I guess I'll start with, um, where did you grow up? I grew up in Harlem um, during the 1950s and 60s. I was born in 1948, so I was a baby basically in the 1950s. Uh, I was coming of age, I think, as a teenager by the 1960s. I grew up in a Harlem that was um, uh, identified as a ghetto which is a very different Harlem, I think, than the Harlem that we're looking at today. Mm -hmm. So I came to understand Harlem both from the uh, sociological construct of the ghetto, mm -hmm. which is externalized, and also from the internalized construct of this is where we live. 
we meaning black people of all kinds, mm -hmm. black people who were from the South, who were from the North, who were coming from Africa, who were coming from the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. So the Harlem that I grew up in was definitely poor, definitely underserviced as a community in terms of what the city thought of us and therefore what was available to us. Mm -hmm. It was definitely overrun with um, power struggles between those of us who had and those of us who did not. Mm -hmm. And it was a Harlem that Malcolm X proliferated in. Mm -hmm. So, and in fact, the first time, maybe the only actually only real time I saw Malcolm X was he was preaching from a soapbox on 116th Street and Lenox Avenue. Mm -hmm. And I was terrified because I had never seen or had known of a black person who could talk the way he did in front of white people, meaning the cops who surrounded us. So he was both uh, enlightening and terrifying, but this was my Harlem. And that's what my Harlem was, enlightening and terrifying. What was your home like inside the house? We were, um, mother raised eight of us by herself, essentially. We were on welfare. We, um, we lived out a notion of, of being poor, of, of not having much. You know, we did have at one time radio and then ultimately television. So there were things that you could compare yourself to. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you could see um, that quote unquote white people certainly had more. Mm -hmm. And they lived in the suburbs, that whole leave it to beaver kind of reality that we were watching on TV or mm -hmm. Father Knows Best, where the white parents took care of the white children, the white mother stayed at home, the white father went to work. Whatever he worked at, he certainly was successful at. He wasn't coming home complaining about bills, and they weren't getting welfare. So we knew, um, just in terms of the social indicators that were coming at us, whether it was television, whether it was newspapers, whether it was school system, mm -hmm. we knew that we were... Um, differentiated both by color and by class. Mm -hmm. Home was um, largely negotiated around those, those kind of conditions. And for me, it was negotiated around being the child in that brood who, from my point of view, was really different. My interests were different. My sensitivities were different. My um, intellect was different. Um, and so I grew up understanding that I was outside, even within my own biological family. As I developed and grew older and came to see myself as an artist, I got some understanding of that, but that also created even more tension for me with a uh, different sibling. Interesting. And even with the siblings, you were second, correct? Um, second oldest? I was second to the eldest, right. Okay. And I actually never wanted to be the eldest. I always thought that was a lot of work <laughs> because, you know, the eldest had to be the step in for the mother when the mother wasn't present. And also the eldest um, appeared to me to have, um, to, to sacrifice so that the rest of us could have. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
and I never thought that that was my, um, that I was going to do well at that. Okay. And, but then when my oldest sister died in 1983, her name, um, is Rosetta DeVoe. She died of complications due to AIDS. She was amongst the few, uh, black women and women of color who were identified in the 1980s as, you know, victims of the disease. Um, that there, there was really literally no attention paid to, to women and certainly not black women and women of color. In any event, she, um, when she died, I became then the eldest living child. Mm-hmm. And I began to understand um, to some degree, I think, what that meant to to be the one who was oldest and who therefore uh, needed to have a sense of everybody else. Right. Mm, okay. And before your sister passed, what was your relationship like with her and in the context of taking care of the rest of your other siblings? Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I never took, took to, um, to, to rules and regulations very much. So I think it was harder for her. <laughs> you know, um, I was not the one, although I was the one who would tell on everybody else. Like if our mother went out, I would report on who did what when she came back. So I was always the one telling the stories. But I was not, you know, I, I think for my sister, it was hard for her to, to manage us all. Also because she um, contracted polio early in life. Mm. So she was what we would call today disabled. And so her body, um, you know, was, was obviously different. And if she were sitting here telling the story, it probably would be a different story, deeply different from her point of view. I would say that we all understood each other as brothers and sisters, but we were never, ever really openly loving and affectionate with each other. And I think that had to do with the fact that our mother uh, was also not an uh, an open, loving, affectionate person. She would say more often than not, you know, she would, if you tried to cozy up to her on the couch, she'd she'd push you away and say, you know, get away from me, get off of me. Mm. So, so, so that meant that we were growing up with someone who was not teaching us how to do certain kinds of emotional work. And speaking of emotion, you and I spoke about grief and loss. We talked about Renee. Yeah. And I wanted to know if you would sort of kind of talk a little bit about Renee and your relationship, but also about her passing. How how it impacted you? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, to to be honest, I cannot say that I liked my sister. I I, I can't go there. So my grief for her is not on a level of longing. My grief around her is just the hole that her death left in the family, Mm -hmm. as as the three deaths of three sisters: the older sister Rosetta. My youngest sister, uh, Tanya, passed away in 2005 of a, of a brain aneurysm she was not aware of. Mm-hmm. She passed away four months to the day of my partner of 22 years. 
And then Renee passed away a couple of years ago. Renee died of, um, from the coroner's point of view, she died of arterial sclerosis, mm -hmm. which was, a you know, just, um, she actually died in her sleep in her, in her apartment mm -hmm. alone. And uh, by the time we got the coroner's report, we came to understand that she, you know, she, she basically died of, of heart failure. My one of my brothers thought that she died of heartache, of of, of a broken heart. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, as I said, I can't say that I was close to Renee because I wasn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, by the time she grew up was, or was coming up, I was already out of the house. Mm -hmm. And also, we just lived very different lives. She she lived more in the street. I lived more in the library. Mm -hmm. I lived more at school and she lived more in the detention center. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was at in the Bronx at the Spotfoot, Spotfoot Home for Children a couple of times. She had a much rougher life than I did. Okay. Um, I, I just think that our personalities weren't really, we, we just weren't close. So when she died, I didn't, I didn't miss her that way. I don't miss her that way. I miss and mourn and grieve for her on the level that, as I said, the whole that gets created both in oneself and in the family mm -hmm. when the ordinal numbers change. And when you try to, to fill that hole by becoming someone else. So when Renee passed away, unlike my other two sisters, I actually tried to externalize my grief by making something for her. Okay. Uh, for Rosie, I delivered a poem at her funeral. For Renee, I delivered a poem at her funeral. For Renee, I actually made what I call um, a book state. And book states are these little, tiny little, installations that I make um, that generally speak to some literary moment or some literary quote. Okay. In the case of Renee, who was a lifelong smoker, who knew that it was terrible for her to continue smoking, but been told that, who just stopped taking her heart medication, just, just stopped taking care of herself. Her book state is called The Surgeon General Declares. Mm. Oh. And it's basically a box that I made for Renee. Mm -hmm. And it has a crushed pack of cools on one side we'll and a heart that looks kind of opaque. And it's really like a funeral box. When it opens, mm -hmm. there's a photo of Renee. Okay. And there's also a copy of the coroner's report, mm -hmm. which which says that she died of arteriosclerotic cardiovascular disease mm -hmm. and that her decomposing body was found at the residence. So that, you know, making this book state helped me to, to come to terms with the fact that both she was gone and also that we weren't close. Mm. And I think that that sense of not being close in grief is something that we don't really get to to talk about a lot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We, we often make saints out of the people who leave us. Right. We do not often think about the totality of who they were in their own lives and who they were 
to to us. So uh, for me, in terms of Renee and what I understood, it was it was important to to try to make art out of something that had, in, on many levels, baffled me, and also um, just was not very close or tender. Alexis, you mentioned that um, when someone dies, you feel like the hole that they leave forces mm -hmm. the others in the family to become somebody else. Can you explain what you meant by that? Yeah, um, I, I hope that I can. I, I think, well, I won't try to speak for my remaining uh, sisters and brothers, so I'll just speak for myself. It, for me, I think, the, well, one, the hole never fills up. You can step into that person's ordinal position, but they're still there. Do you know what I mean? My sister is still my mother's oldest child. She's just not the oldest living child. So I feel haunted by, in the best sense of the word haunted, I feel haunted by her presence, not, not, not by her absence. And I think that's true for each of the sisters that I've lost. So the whole is both filled by the next one moving up, and also filled by the person who's gone. Okay. Do you, do you see any connection between, and I'll just say your sisters, um, mm -hmm. your sisters and your mother and yourself? Is there something that sort of connects you all? Our mother is the matriarch. There's, there's, there's no question about that. She is our family's matriarch. And we all had different fathers, so... And she was very clear with us. We could not call each other stepsister or stepfather. Mm. She was totally against that. And she gave us, in spite of the fact that we all had different fathers, she gave us her last name. So we all have the same last name. Mm -hmm. Although my father was, was Richard Hill and uh, Tanya's father was Arthur Lee Harrison and uh, Renee's father was Vernon Smith. So she, she, she enforced familial connection. Mm -hmm. At the same time, as we grew older and we all grew to understand our more individualized histories, we had to, we, we realized that, that those enforced connections were in tension with the more individualized histories because we have different health issues, you know what I'm saying? We have different understandings of who the father was or is or, yeah. or what actually was because they're all, all those men have passed away. Mm -hmm. And my mother had a habit of saying, when we would ask her about our fathers, she would become, you know, really angry and she would say things like, I'm your mother and your father. Oh. And so one, that was my first understanding of gender, like, oh, this shit is fluid. <laughs> she could be whatever she wants to be. Oh, okay. Okay. That was my first real lesson in gen being gender fluid. You know, if I could use the contemporary language. Mm -hmm. And two, she made it clear that we were not to question not only them, their, them as parents, the fathers, but her as, as the um, head of the household. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, just in terms of your, your question, Miranda, yes, I think that we, we have this connection through our mother. And as we have grown up, we are also 
disconnected by that connection because we were not allowed to really interrogate mm-hmm. the places where we were different from each other. Mm-hmm. But she could not let us do that and also hold us together as a family. Right. Is she still alive? Yes, my mother turned 90 on February 5th. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I was curious about the material evidence that you might have in possession for your sisters in the past, particularly Renee, the kind that might be pictures or letters or something that says that they were here. Those things are in my mother's possession. Mm-hmm. Currently, and when she passes, they will pass to me. I have a couple of pictures of Rosetta in my own possession. Mm-hmm. I have pictures of Tanya. I have the books that I gave to Tanya over the years, her and her children, mm-hmm. that came back to me after she passed away. Okay. Unfortunately, my mother took care of the afterlives of Rosetta and Tanya and mm-hmm. Renee which meant she basically threw a lot of shit away. Okay. I know you don't want to hear that, baby. <laughs> it does. But, yeah, it, she basically it, threw yeah. a lot of shit away. I do know that she has stuff related to them, because mm-hmm. I've seen it. And in Renee's case, for example, Renee wrote some, apparently Renee wrote notes to God, dear God, mm-hmm. you know, I don't mm-hmm. know why this happened today or dear God please help me pay the rent and I asked my mother for those notes mm-hmm. um, because I wanted to 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 make a book out of them and mm-hmm. she refused me to have them okay and I thought that was kind of odd because she and Renee weren't that close either so I, I didn't understand why she was holding on to that material that was my question to you I was wondering why she said no why you mm-hmm. you, of, you know what made you what, what immediately came to mind about the refusal? You know, mm-hmm. to well, I think ultimately I came to understand that this was her child and that she wanted to possess that memory in a particular way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I knew that I would have to wait. Okay. I would have to wait because I've, she has let me know that these things will pass on to me. I wasn't, I'm, I wasn't happy about that. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I, I couldn't cry and bitch about it because, as I said, Renee and I were not close. So I couldn't claim some emotional landscape mm-hmm. that was more than her landscape as mother, mother and child. So I'm thinking about this, this idea that, what you mentioned before, we're not really allowed, or maybe we don't take the space to express grief mm-hmm. with uh, and dissonance when it comes to our um, our kin, right? Mm-hmm. Our um, mm-hmm. our relatives, maybe our mother, fa- mm-hmm. mother father, or mm-hmm. or siblings, and how mm-hmm. powerful it is. Mm-hmm. I think those stories need to be told because every now and then I'll go to a, a service, someone's um, service, and someone will say, "I wasn't very close to," mm-hmm. and for me. I always felt that that was an honest thing because making making safe people who passed away feels inauthentic. Yeah. You know, it feels like you're sort of sweeping or or putting together a picture of someone for somebody else's benefit as opposed to really issuing your own complicated feelings around someone you grew up in a house with or someone 
that raised you and you're like, well, here are all these people. What do I say? And yeah. like I said, I've always felt that was really important for you, people to tell their stories, the honest, yeah. you know. Yeah, and we've been raised as, as black people in particular to not speak ill of the dead. Mm. So that, that notion that we cannot be honest about the dead mm -hmm. also um, frames how we talk about those relationships. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And also grief is complicated. A lot of people don't understand. Yeah. And they don't understand how to grieve by themselves privately and publicly yeah. this is true very complicated i like that complication and that tension because i think it it speaks to us mm -hmm. those of us who are here and speaking to each other in this way mm -hmm. um and it also tells us about us you know about what we feel is appropriate mm -hmm. a lot of stories about people come out to me or at least have happened to me when um someone has passed but it's mm -hmm. not when they're at you know, at the funeral or the service, mm -hmm. it's outside of that. You know, it happened to me with my mom, it happens to me with my sisters. Um, and so, yeah, it's very, um, what do you call it? It's illuminating, a bit shocking sometimes, mm -hmm. you're dealing with all those feelings, you know. Mm -hmm. And grief is, grief is um, I like when you talked about that whole, you mm -hmm. know, because what I heard in that, I'm not sure if this is what you meant, it's simply a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. that gone right you interact with that that absence mm -hmm. is it's very unique and very personal do you mm -hmm. know it's an absent presence mm. Mm -hmm. so then how do you deal with this absent presence as you go forward my oldest sister was also my oldest sister identified as a lesbian oh Okay. Yeah, so I got to talk with her about that a little bit in, you know, life before she passed. But her whole community, when she passed, whatever her community was, it went with her. I never got to interact with her former lover or former lovers or mm -hmm. friends. I mean, that all went away when she went away. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea who they were, and I wouldn't know who they are today. So there's a kind of absent presence mm -hmm. around her queer life her her very, what was for me a very queer death so so this notion of of, of, of an absent presence is really mm -hmm. um, also something that grief as Miranda was pointing out that grief engenders and and how do we how do we as black people allow grief to be grief as opposed to grief to be another narrative that we're telling right? wow. another family story that we're telling yeah i mean that's very hard because it's also just thinking about if you're you know you sort of your situation growing up mm -hmm. different siblings and not having that connection mm -hmm. in that sense even that is a, a sense of grief or i would mm -hmm. think yeah it's pain in that as well and accepting that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think my family life today is on par with the pain that it was when I was growing up amongst them. I think one of the things I want to say around that is that the whole notion of talking about my family mm -hmm, mm -hmm. makes me feel deeply vulnerable, okay. deeply vulnerable because 
it means that I have to to address, and I'm happy to, not happy, but I'm willing to, mm-hmm. but it means addressing a kind of uh, fractitious reality, if you will, uh, one in, that continues to, to be painful. Mm-hmm. Family is a source of deep ambivalence and pain for me mm-hmm. in this Black queer life I've been living. Mm. Mm. I- I could talk to you all day. <laughs> and I think that we're going to have more conversations about this <laughs> online. But I'd like to leave it there. I'd like okay, to leave love. it there. Because I think mm-hmm. it's really um, powerful and beautiful. And thank you for allowing us, you know, um, some, some time, you know, for us as well as our audience to talk about mm-hmm. that fracturedness, you know, mm-hmm. that complexity and that nuance. Um, and for being vulnerable. So we appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Miranda. And thank you for giving me a chance to air some of those, some of these feelings and states of being.